It is another blessed occasion this Lord's Day morning that has permitted us the joy and the privilege of assembling even as we are. And as was mentioned already, as we look over the audience and see a good number of our membership and others who've come our way today, we're certainly honored that all of us have allowed, been given the privilege of assembling on the first day of the week for the purpose of worshiping and praising the God of heaven. As you know, during this calendar year, our procession through the Word of God has brought us rather deep into both the Old and the New Testaments at this point. And in fact, in so doing, we come today to perhaps a consideration of a character of the Scriptures, especially an Old Testament character that may not be quite as familiar to us as others might well be. In fact, at this point, almost 85%, the totality of the Word of God completed in our reading. But in this previous week, and as we read in Jeremiah, our discussion has centered around an Ethiopian eunuch. He took center stage in Jeremiah chapters 38 and 39, but it's not the eunuch that immediately comes to mind when we think of Ethiopian eunuchs. The very mention of that phrase no doubt draws all of us to Acts chapter 8. We know so well about this individual to whom Philip proclaimed Jesus as Philip joined himself to the chariot and preached the marvelous magnitudes of Christ. It was this eunuch who in fact stopped the preacher in mid-sermon and begged to be baptized in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. And yet it was on that occasion. That Ethiopian eunuch is not the one of our consideration this morning primarily. There's an Ethiopian eunuch in the Old Testament. Again, in Jeremiah chapters 38 and 9. What might we learn about this gentleman? What might be some features, some rather impressive lessons that you and I can take from the saga that was read to us earlier and use those things to assist us? in striving to be more as God would have us to be. I would suggest that we at least cast a broad spotlight on the context. In what way does this Ethiopian eunuch appear? And here is a very brief summary of the details that led to his appearance on the biblical stage. In fact, days were not terribly good in ancient Jerusalem at this time. We remember because of their iniquity, because of their rebellion against God, their days were numbered. Babylon, in fact, was already knocking on the proverbial northern doorstep, if you please. And in so doing, you may notice at the very top, the Babylonian army was already besieging Jerusalem. However, something much to the delight of the people of Jerusalem began to happen. Their neighbor to the south and to the west, namely Egypt, actually sent an army. And that army, in fact, was such that as it came into that vicinity, the Babylonian, the Babylonian army actually turned and left. The people for at least a few days thought that all was well again. They had been saved, if you please, by the assistance and the help of the king of Egypt. However, it was during that very same time that Jeremiah ushered a prophecy. While that army in Babylon had turned away and left, Jeremiah had the courage and the bravery to make statements like these. He said, the army in Babylon is going to come back. And when they do, they're going to utterly destroy this city. And when they come back, you will find no help from Egypt. As Jeremiah made those statements, you can well tell the people didn't much care for what he said. His countrymen accused him of being a traitor. They accused him, in fact, of being a turncoat, and therefore they had him arrested. 
that arrest led to his utter imprisonment in verses 11 and following of Jeremiah 37. You notice with me as this man Jeremiah was imprisoned, he was imprisoned because he had spoken the word of the Lord. He was imprisoned because it just so happened the people didn't appreciate what he had to say. The people were far more patriotic than they were devoted to the Lord. You might notice finally, many days passed and finally the king whose name was Zedekiah, Zedekiah sent and asked Jeremiah plainly, Is there any word from the Lord? Jeremiah 37 verse 17. Jeremiah one last time said, Yes, there is, but you're not going to like it. Here was the king, and Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord has not altered or changed, and it speaks that you and your people, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, are going to be overwhelmed by Babylon. No wonder as you close that chapter and start the next one, the interesting scene of events continues. In Jeremiah chapter 38, verses 1 and following, you notice again that Jeremiah found himself in some dire circumstances. For he had been given these powerful words and said very plainly that those who will do the will of God will go into Babylon, take their punishment. Those who try to stay behind and those who fight against Babylon are those who are not doing the will of God. The people were aghast. How could anybody make this statement? In fact, they came before the king and others and said, This man, Jeremiah, is weakening the hands of our army by the things he is saying. He is causing the people to be of low countenance. Their spirit, if you please, is weakened. Therefore, as they came before the king, the king said, Do with him whatever you want to. We learn that Zedekiah was a weak kind of man, wasn't he? He didn't have the backbone and the courage to stand up for what was right, and so he just let the people do to Jeremiah whatever they wanted. It is into that context we find verse number 6 in Jeremiah 38. I'd invite you to read it. Then took they Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah, the son of Hamalek, that was in the court of the prison, and they let down Jeremiah with cords. And in the dungeon there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sunk in the mire. I'd invite you to take a visual perspective of what it was like to be cast into an ancient dungeon. Now the word dungeon there quite frankly has reference to a pit or a cistern. You'll notice that that's the place that these enemies of Jeremiah chose to cast him in light of his so-called traitorship to Judah. They took him, cast him into this pit. Now we are told in light of it being something like a cistern There was no water in it, but it was soupy. It was miry, if you please. And they cast him in it, and he sunk down in it. Think of what that must have been like to be cast in a place like that. Certainly different than a modern-day prison, isn't it? Our prisoners in the jail cells, they've got a nice bed, TV, workout room, three fine meals a day, and yet look where Jeremiah was. Here was a man who, again, had committed no crime. He had done nothing evil against the state, if you please, just a proclamation and that a firm declaration of the very words of heaven. As these individuals cast him into that place, that then brings us to the record that was just read at our hearing by Brother Allen a minute ago. 
Verse number 7 then brings before us a gentleman named Ebed-Melech, an Ethiopian eunuch. It says, Now when Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs which was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon, the king then sitting in the gate of Benjamin, Ebed-Melech went forth out of the king's house and spake to the king, saying, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the dungeon. And he is like to die for hunger in the place where he is, for there is no bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Take from thence thirty men with thee, and take up Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he die. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him, and went into the house of the king under the treasury, and took thence old cast clouts and old rotten rags, and let them down by cords into the dungeon of Jeremiah. And Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said unto Jeremiah, Put now these old cast clouts and rotten rags under thine armholes under the cords. And Jeremiah did so. So they drew up Jeremiah with cords and took him up out of the dungeon. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. What a picture. We find here an almost unknown individual coming to the aid of Jeremiah. A man named Ebed-Melech. What are some things that you and I can appreciate about Ebed-Melech just from the passage that you and I have noted to this point? I would invite us to begin with observation one. From the very text drawn from verse number nine, we notice that Ebed-Melech became aware of this place that Jeremiah had been placed, this dungeon, this cistern into which he had been cast. And it seems with immediacy these were his thoughts. He came to the king in verse 8 and then verse 9 says, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah. We would have to applaud Ebed-Melech for his rather strong and powerful sense of wrong versus right. He knew up front that what was being done to Jeremiah was absolutely improper and even evil is the very word he used in his description of it. I would invite you to consider a development of some thoughts along that same line this morning. There perhaps has always been a tendency among the human family to whitewash over what happens to not be our preferences, to justify behavior in various and sundry sorts. And yet Ebed-Melech did not do so. He knew that what was done was not right and he made no attempt to justify it despite the fact the king let it happen. From his point of view, it probably would have been safe to just say nothing. For after all, the king gave these men the permission to put Jeremiah here. And yet Ebed-Melech came before the king and said, What is being done is not right. An impressive kind of thing to appreciate Ebed-Melech with that kind of courage, isn't it? Again, the sense of wrong versus right very openly seen in the case of Ebed-Melech. As you and I think about developing some of those ideas, how often in the Word of God do we find circumstances where individuals did become mixed up and try to justify what was not justifiable? In Isaiah 5, verse number 20, "'Woe to them that call evil good and good evil, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter.'" that put light for dark and dark for light. 
The people of Isaiah's day were so confused, they were willing to justify and rationalize seemingly anything and simply let it go. Here was an Ethiopian eunuch that wasn't of that perspective. He knew this wasn't right. Isn't it interesting that we still need individuals who will stand four square on the understanding of what God proclaims is wrong versus right? There are some things that will never be acceptable, period. It doesn't matter how many do it. And it doesn't matter how many might be of a disposition to think that it's okay. Ebed-Melech didn't try to justify what was happening. You'll notice that that's just one circumstance of so many others that might be listed in the Word of God. In Galatians 2, verses 11 to 15, we find the inspired Apostle Paul in the midst of a circumstance like this. Not that he was in a dungeon, and neither was Peter for that matter. But Peter was a tremendous influential figure. He was, in fact, the very one to whom the keys of the kingdom had been given by the Lord Himself and those He used in Acts chapter 2. And yet, Peter was in the wrong. Paul, in fact, directly asserted, He was to be blamed, and I withstood him to the face. Galatians 2.11 In fact, three verses later, it was directly affirmed that what Peter had done was ungodliness. How easy would it have been for Paul to justify it. After all, this man did walk with Jesus for a long time. He did understand well the nature of what it was like to have the keys of the kingdom. How easy would it have been for Paul to simply let things go and to say nothing? And yet, we notice on that occasion again, Peter was the one reprimanded, rebuked, if you please, by Paul. Those examples perhaps bring us to appreciate a number of others. There's no amount of sophistry, and that's a word that just means high-level talking. There's no amount of $5 words that can justify what God has condemned. And yet the human family tries so often to do it, don't we? We find ways to think, well, that's just the way he thinks. I think my way. Who am I to judge him? And who am I to draw conclusions about his demeanor, his behavior? You and I know well that Ebed-Melech knew there was a wrong and there was a right. And that was a line not to be crossed. Isn't it amazing then, some of the last comments, how today the church runs aground in so many cases when there are those who attempt to make these same errors that thankfully Ebed-Melech never made. There are those who will try to justify their gambling. Playing the lottery, they claim, is really not any major deal. Surely God understands. It's just a little fun. And there are those who happily have their beer a few times a week and think that God doesn't really care about that. And there are those who look on any number of other activities and the world lifts up the hands and applauds those who engage in these. And those kinds of thinkings obviously come into the church as well if we aren't awfully careful. And yet, as you and I notice the Word of God, how often do we remember that Paul and others in that first century era stood with such determination against those doing the very things that you and I have just listed? In 1 Peter 4, verse number 3, as the inspired apostle Peter addressed those of that day and listed the sins of the Gentiles, he specifically listed 
what would fall under the heading of social drinking. If it was wrong then, brethren, what has changed? Not the slightest thing. As you and I give thought to gambling and the circumstances found in the Word of God demanding that all of us, in fact, use the fullness of God's blessings upon us in the way He's commanded to use it in a way He has asserted and not frivolously, casting it away and in the exploitation of others, we understand there is no authority, no justification for such. You and I can even observe questions about something simply as innocent maybe as the attendance. Oddly enough, we read this past week in Hebrews chapter 10, didn't we? Does God care if I miss a service or not? You better believe He cares. And He specifically said, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Which one's God? What about Wednesday night? What about Sunday morning? What about various and sundry times? Does it really matter? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10, 26 to 29. And that very context identifies that living God is one who answers to those who have sinned willfully. And the Hebrew writer says that's those who willfully forsake the assemblies. How serious then a matter is it? There is a wrong and there is a right. And ebed Melech, thanks being to God, knew the difference. I know you and I in many ways do too, but may we put into our heart the circumstance and the determination so that even when circumstances arise, we cannot be persuaded otherwise. We will know what thus saith the Lord is, and that will be enough. Ebed-Melech has already been a great example, hasn't he? This Ethiopian eunuch of the Old Testament. As we close that slide, might we ask, what about some other additional lessons from this man as well? You'll notice... Secondly, my, I draw our attention to verse number 8 of Jeremiah 38. And I've entitled it simply the word initiative. Isn't it still an intriguing thing that here was a eunuch? By and large, they were not looked upon as the high-ranking individuals. He was just a servant in the palace of the king from all the evidence that Jeremiah 38 and 39 puts before us. And yet here was a servant who took it upon himself once he learned about the circumstances of Jeremiah to go and speak to the king personally. He didn't send an ambassador. He didn't send any other individual to speak upon his behalf. He went personally. What an initiative this man Ebed-Melech took. I would invite you to develop it, perhaps like this. Isn't it a tendency, I suppose, that we continue to face in our modern era, maybe even more so than in days gone by, the tendency to not get involved? That's his problem. That's their dilemma. That's a circumstance, and I think I just won't know part of it. Here was Ebed-Melech, and he certainly didn't take that approach, did he? He could have just let Jeremiah die in the cistern. He could have allowed days to pass, nothing to happen, and everything would no doubt have proceeded along, and Jeremiah may well have died. And yet, Ebed-Melech went to the king himself. He took an initiative to, if we might use the word, involve himself. 
you'll notice I have asked you to think about some other passages that do seemingly remind us other biblical characters that behave in a way similar to that of Ebed-Melech. In Romans chapter 1, verses 14 and following, Paul made a dramatic statement to the church in Rome, didn't he? The drama of those verses are highlighted perhaps like these. We remember verse 16 so well. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But what prefaced or what preceded that single verse? Verses 14 and 15, Paul said, In addition to not being ashamed of preaching the gospel, he said, I'm debtor to preach it. And I'm ready to preach it. Here was a church in Rome in the imperial city of the ancient world. A place where, of course, the rule of Caesar was sensed even more acutely than anywhere else. And yet here was Paul ready to enter through the Appian Way into that place and proclaim the grand and unsearchable riches of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He knew the brethren there were in need of His encouragement, and they were in need of the truth that He would bring to them. And oh, how He was ready to go. You might also appreciate the wording of 2 Corinthians 4.13. As Paul made reference to the Corinthian congregation there, he said, I have believed, therefore I have spoken. The belief and the confidence and the courage that he had within him prompted him to declare and to set forth and to preach and speak. We find Ebed-Melech's confidence and his determination led him to speak as well. And before the king he went. Now we have learned so far in the lesson today that Zedekiah the king was not the purest of individuals by any sense. In fact, the scriptures catalog him among the evil rulers of ancient Judah. Evil indeed he was. Zedekiah will ultimately, of course, be punished for the evil that he wrought. And the nation over which he ruled and reigned will suffer, of course, due to their own rebellion. When you think about, though, the next idea, think about some of the other notable figures of the Word of God. We could list Daniel, who purposed in his heart not to defile himself. Despite being in a foreign land, he determined, I'll not eat what is on the king's table. We have to be of great confidence to appreciate the bravery that took on Daniel's part. One by one, we notice these individuals took their initiative. Daniel spoke to that gentleman who provided him the food and said, We, of course, are of the servants of God. You let us eat vegetables for ten days, and then test us against those who eat the king's meat. Didn't that take initiative? Surely it did. I would invite you to notice as you come to the bottom of that slide, in many ways you and I are encouraged to allow our faith to be manifested, of course, in the works in which we are engaged. Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. To borrow the wording of James 2, verse 17. Do you and I illustrate the initiative involved in knowing wrong from right and proceeding to act upon it? I know that as parents and those who lead our families, we do, of course, strive in love to lead them with careful instruction. We know what kinds of things can be so harmful to them in years ahead. And so 
we speak, we take the initiative, we sometimes even discipline. But in every case, may that be motivated by an appreciation of initiative. You did notice with me that that initiative led Ebed-Melech to do something else. He didn't just go to the king and talk. The king then said, okay, you take 30 men and you go and you rescue Jeremiah. Again, knowing where Jeremiah was, that wasn't an easy task. You noticed Ebed-Melech had to go into the closet, if you please, and there find some old rags that he could tie together and lower them down in that cistern where Jeremiah was. And then he told him, you put your armholes over them and we'll pull you out. And that's what he did. He had to tie the old rags together and find the appropriate ways to do that and lower them down appropriately. And then and only then was he able to rescue Jeremiah. Thus, the work that he did reminds us again of the efforts that you and I invest in service to the Master Himself. As you come to the bottom of that slide, what a conviction we see in Paul as that kind of courage reminds us in some ways even of Ebed-Melech. I know whom I believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. 2 Timothy 1.12 Ebed-Melech acted, and maybe that brings us to a third observation. This third observation perhaps is almost the most immediate one. What prompted Ebed-Melech to do all of this? It wasn't the character of his own name, and it wasn't the character of his own blessing he would experience. He was concerned for Jeremiah. When he came to the king, what was the first word he mentioned? After highlighting it's evil they've done to him, he said he's going to die in that cistern if we leave him there. There's no bread in the city. And surely if there ain't any bread in the city, they're not going to take it out and give it to a man in the dungeon. Ebed-Melech was concerned for Jeremiah. He had a concern for his well-being, a concern for the fact that he may well die in this place. And in so doing... He thus proceeded to act in the ways that you and I have already studied today. As you think about the degree of that concern for others, it reminds us again of so many biblical figures and characters, perhaps Jesus standing at the top of that heap. Our Lord, even at the very time He was about to feed 4,000, He was compassionate about them because they've been with Me, and if they leave, they may faint in the way. The Lord was concerned about them. And thus he performed a miracle to provide for them, and that he did. Not only was Jesus concerned on that occasion, he certainly was greatly concerned about the spiritual plight and the spiritual circumstances of the folks of his day. Even when he had great success preaching, was he not quick to say near the close of Luke chapter 4, I must go to other cities also. They also are in need of hearing the gospel and hearing the words from heaven. Our Lord's concern reminds us well about the marching orders given to all of us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. The encouragement that you and I are to to be concerned and to look on the well-being of others even before we look on the well-being of ourselves, Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. 
Those kind of words and those kind of statements hearken us back to the days of Ebed-Melech so very well, don't they? Maybe in light of the closing thought on that slide, we have found so far in Ebed-Melech a rather interesting Old Testament eunuch, one who reminds us of matters that will be fully embodied in the Christian era, admittedly. But there is one more thing awaiting us in the life of Ebed-Melech. The last and final thing is this last observation of the lesson this morning. Ebed-Melech is mentioned only one more time in all the Bible. He crossed the biblical stage and left it so very quickly. Jeremiah chapter 38 is where we find primarily his mention, but there is one other mention one chapter later. This one is such a powerful one, I'd like to read it. It's Jeremiah 39, beginning in verse number 15. And this is the last time Ebed-Melech is ever mentioned in the Bible. Now, while the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah, while he was shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Go and speak to Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring my words upon this city for evil and not for good, and they shall be accomplished in that day before thee. But I will deliver thee in that day, saith the Lord, and thou shalt not be given unto the hand of the men of whom thou art afraid. For I will surely deliver thee, and thou shalt not fall by the sword, but thy life shall be for a prey unto thee, because thou hast put thy trust in me, saith the Lord. What a grand passage. The God of heaven knew very well what Ebed-Melech had done. And here, sometime later, Jeremiah was again in the court of the prison. He again was in unfavorable circumstances, but yet God gave him a word to proclaim. And his word involved that of Ebed-Melech. On that occasion, God said, I well know what Ebed-Melech did. And I know that he trusted in me, and I understand well. And in so doing, I will reward him. And when the Babylonian army does come, his life is not going to be taken like all the others. I'm going to deliver him. The last part of our lesson today is this. God knows very well those that are His. In fact, the Apostle Paul, borrowing that language, asserted it directly in 2 Timothy 2.19. The God of heaven knows those that are His. If you and I are His, He knows it. If you and I are attempting with service to follow Him with dedication and determination, just like Ebed-Melech in the Old Testament period did, He knows it. And He also knows if we're just play-acting. If we really aren't serious about our Christianity, if we aren't serious about the matters of truth, today, might we notice, Ebed-Melech was spared, and he appreciated a grand blessing of God toward his favor. Those that are faithful on that day of judgment will also be delivered. They will not be subject to the second death. Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. They will in fact not be cast where the devil and his angels shall be. Matthew 25, 41. They will be delivered and ushered into the everlasting realms of the marvelous majesties of heaven on high. Delivered. Ebed-Melech has been an Old Testament eunuch of which we've studied this morning. A eunuch that perhaps we didn't know quite so much about, but I hope we're impressed with him. We can learn much from him just like we could the New Testament eunuch of which we read in Acts chapter 8.
the closing thoughts to our lesson today then are these. As we've studied Ebed-Melech, he has taught us, reminded us, that there is a wrong and a right, and ne'er the twain shall meet. And he has reminded us, hasn't he, about the earnestness of the initiative that he took and how that led his faith to be exemplified in action. Thirdly, we appreciated easily the concern he had for Jeremiah's welfare. And finally, the deliverance that the God of heaven promised and prophesied concerning him. Today, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a faithful Christian, then like Ebed-Melech, you have no promise, of course, of the deliverance he enjoyed. Won't you come to the Master today? Won't you come and rush to His side at once? If we could be of assistance in that, the plan of salvation is the dictation of what's right and we can't change it. You must believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess Christ as the Master, the Son of God, to be baptized. If we could help you in that way today, we would delight to do it. If you need to return, though, to His faithful side... That second law of pardon of 1 John 1, 7 is, of course, always a pertinent matter. You need to, of course, believe that Jesus can and will forgive you. You need to repent of the sins that have separated you from Him, and you need to make confession of them and beseech prayers from brethren. And we'd be happy to help you. If today you'd like to use Ebed-Melech as an example of doing what's right, pray that you'll do it while together we stand and while we sing.